So please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue our sermon series through Paul's New Testament letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 2 verses 14 to 16. So Ephesians 2 verses 14 to 16. And so one, one way to understand the, the outline of Ephesians chapter 2 is that it has two larger sections from verse 1 to verse 10 and from verse 11 to verse 22. And both of these larger sections of, of this chapter essentially have the, the same outline, which is close to remember who you were, remember what Christ has done, and remember who you are now. And so we saw that in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And we're also going to see that as we continue through this second half of the chapter, verses 11 to 22. Now, today we're in the middle section of the second half of Ephesians 2. And so we're going to see that Paul is calling the, the Ephesians and his original audience and, and us today to remember, yet again, in a slightly different way, what Christ has done for us and who we are now in Christ, who he has made us to be in himself. However, we also need to remember from last Sunday that Paul's original audience was a, was a mixture of pagan Gentiles who had become Christians and ethnic Jews who had become Christians. So it was a mix. And last Sunday we looked at verses 11 to 13 and Paul, who is an ethnic Jew, addressed the Gentile Christians directly and he used the pronoun you. We're going to see today Paul will directly address everyone the Gentile Christians and the, the Jewish Christians, and Paul uses the pronouns our, us, we. Now, I'm, and I'm about to, to read the text for us, but I want you to listen for the theme of this passage. And, and the one word, this one word theme is peace. Peace appears twice in these two verses, and it, and it shows up a couple of more times in, in the verses that are to follow that we'll get to next Sunday. That word peace you know, peace is one of the, the Bible's big words. And, and it's a word that the whole world has been thinking about, I think, a lot more the last few weeks. And as important and significant as peace between nations is, the peace in our passage is far greater, far more significant. And the peace that Paul speaks of today has already been accomplished by Christ for his people, and this peace will, will last for all eternity. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word, Ephesians 2, verses 14, 15, and 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. Now we have these three, these three verses. And this happens sometimes as I'm looking at the passage, preparing for the sermon. I, I'm looking hard, thinking hard for an outline, I begin to come up with outlines, and then I begin to realize, you know, that outline is making things seem a lot more complicated, uh, and it's not actually helping, and so then I have to take the outline and crumble it up and throw it away. And so, so we have no outline, rather we're going to work through these three verses 
kind of phrase by phrase, kind of going almost kind of comma by comma, section by section. And I think, I think that's the helpful way to do this because in many ways, Paul is saying the same thing over and over again, just in slightly different ways. It's almost as if he's, uh, he, you know, he's holding this, this beautiful diamond in his hand and he just keeps turning it in different ways. And, and as the light hits it, uh, the, the brilliance of the, different, of, of, the, of the diamond shines off in different ways. And so looking at the opening phrase of verse 14, we see that Christ himself is our peace. As Paul says, for he himself is our peace. In the original Greek text, it's strongly emphatic here. So let me read this again. For he himself is our peace. It doesn't just say that Christ is our peace. But he himself is our peace. As I've already said, peace is one of the Bible's big words. And peace is a word that is closely associated with with the Savior, with Christ, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You may remember from our Advent series when we spent time in Isaiah. Isaiah 9, verse 6, we read, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That was one of the titles for the Savior who was to come. And then in uh, the Christmas story in in Luke 2, verse 14, that the the choir of angels sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then Jesus says the following to his his closest disciples there in the upper room, uh, on the night that he was arrested, on the night before he would die on the cross, in John 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then, at the very end of this, this upper room discourse, this conversation that Jesus has with these closest disciples just before he's arrested, the, the night before he would die on the cross, his, his concluding words to his closest disciples before he prays his high priestly prayer is John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So peace is closely associated with Christ in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, look again at our text in Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace. You see what Paul is saying? Peace is not merely a blessing that Jesus gives to us. Peace is not merely something that Jesus dispenses to his people. That he himself is our peace. Now put another way, peace is a reality experienced in fellowship with Christ. In relationship with Christ. In spiritual union with Christ. Now we're going to revisit Christ as our peace later in the sermon because Paul keeps coming back to it in these three verses. But, But look one more time at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Notice that pronoun, pronoun our. See, th- there is an individual aspect of the gospel, and we've been talking a lot about that in the past few weeks. I mean, we are individually sinners, and as sinners born into this world, uh, dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are at war with God, at war with God in the rebellion of our sin, and we are saved as individuals. 
by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We're saved by grace through faith as individuals. However, Paul's going to highlight the, the corporate and the communal aspect of this gospel piece next in these few verses. And so, so look with me now at that second, that second phrase in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Has made us both one. So made us, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It's made us one. Christ himself brought Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians together, together as one. And we're going to see this later in the passage, but Christ did not merely make these these two groups of people nicer and more well-behaved so that they could get along a little bit better together. Do you see that he makes them, he makes them both one. He recreates in himself a new humanity and so in paul's world in the first century it was a radical thing to say that he has made both jewish christians and gentile christians one he's made us both one in our day that would mean that all christians all christians regardless of how of how the world would define us by different categories that all christians from every nation tribe people and language have now been made in Christ, recreated in Christ as a new humanity. Not merely made nicer or more well-behaved so we can get along with each other a little bit better, but we've been made one. Okay, well, well, Richard, how did Christ do this? Well, look now at all of verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there was a symbolic dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Remember from last week that the the Jews referred to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision. But there was also a literal physical wall dividing Jews and Gentiles at the temple. And Paul had both walls in mind in verse 14. And so that literal wall of division was around the temple. You see, the temple had many different areas. And as one moved closer in, to the center of the temple, that access was more and more restricted, that fewer and fewer people were allowed to to enter in. In the very center was the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and only one time a year. Just outside the Holy of Holies was the holy place, where the priest served daily by keeping the candles and the incense burning and, and the table of showbread fresh. Outside of that was the priest's court, where the the altar for burnt sacrifices was kept burning. Then outside of that were multiple courts. First, there was the court of the Israelites, which was only for the men, only for the ceremonially clean Israelite men. Next was the women's court, where Israelite women were allowed. Then beyond that, we finally get to the court of the Gentiles, separated by a four and a half feet high wall on which was posted a warning in both Greek and Latin forbidding any Gentile to enter on pain of death. So look again at verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See in his flesh, in Christ's perfect righteous life, in his flesh, in his atoning sacrificial death on the cross, in his flesh, in his atoning death, the dividing wall of hostility is broken down. Broken down between the Jews 
and the Gentiles that Christ was the one Savior, the singular Savior for all, for both Jews and Gentiles. Now, you may remember back from our study of the Gospel of John that in John 19, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that Pontius Pilate had a sign placed on Christ's cross. And the inscription on the sign said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And how ironic that the inscription was written in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin for all to read about the Savior of all. See, the dividing wall of hostility between us and God and among men and women due to our sin really was destroyed, was broken down, torn down in Christ's flesh at the cross. That outside of the shadow of the cross, we would still be dead in our sins, separated from God and divided from one another for every reason under the sun. But not so in Christ. He's made one new man, recreated us as one new humanity. Okay, well, how did Jesus' life and death break down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles? Look look with me now at all of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Okay, I know that's a mouthful. Okay, so listen to that last phrase again. Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, I want to acknowledge that I know that many of us are quite unfamiliar with our Old Testament. And I know that if we're honest, and it's okay to be honest, if we're honest, we're not exactly sure how the the ceremonial law, the civil law, the moral law of the Old Testament, how it all fits into the bigger picture, what that means for us today. And so let me attempt to help us out with this, okay? So I'm going to attempt to be clear. Verse 15 does not mean that Jesus has destroyed the law of God, but rather Jesus fulfilled all the law's righteous requirements. That Jesus perfectly performed all the law's demands that had to be fulfilled for us to be reconciled to God and counted as righteous in his sight. You know, as the the, the late pastor theologian R.C. Sproul simply put it simply, Jesus never corrects the Old Testament law, he fulfills it. Okay, so look again at verse 14, the beginning of verse 15. What Paul has in mind is the Old Testament ceremonial law and sacrificial system and not the moral law expressed in the Ten Commandments. The moral law expressed in the Ten Commandments have not been abolished. In fact, the moral law is all the more appropriate for believers today who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and who are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. Not that we have the moral law, that we have the Ten Commandments, and if we obey them well enough, then our good deeds cannot weigh our bad deeds and we can somehow earn God's grace. It's just the opposite. It's because we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. We have, we have received God's grace, that we have been born again, given new hearts, that we are now his workmanship, God's workmanship, recreated in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we ought all the more to care about God's moral law and how he calls us to live. So what Paul has in mind is the Old Testament ceremonial law and sacrificial system. You see, whenever God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt through the Exodus, God then graciously gave his people many rules and regulations regarding what they were to eat. 
and feasts and festivals that they were to keep and sacrifices they were to offer. And these commandments expressed in ordinances served a specific purpose for a specific time in the history of redemption. The ceremonial law was to keep God's people distinct from the world for a time, and the ceremonial law was to point them forward to Jesus, the Savior who was yet to come. This is what Paul writes about in Galatians 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And who is this promised offspring? It's the promised offspring from Genesis 3.15. This is the Savior. This is Christ, God the Son, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. A little bit later in Galatians 3, verse 24, Paul says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. See, the Old Testament ceremonial law served as our guardian, as a guardian or a tutor, or as one commentator put it, as a child's playpen to keep God's people distinct and safe from the outside pagan nations and to preserve their unique identity as the people of God until the Savior to whom the law pointed took on flesh and dwelt among us. In many ways, the book of Hebrews makes this so clear. Listen to what we read in Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system, was just a shadow pointing forward to the real thing. Later, in Hebrews 10, verse 11 to 14, we read, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, I think Sinclair Ferguson uh, uses a very helpful metaphor uh, about the ceremonial law and the sacrificial system as, as being like uh, construction scaffolding uh, at a construction site. Construction scaffolding. You know, when, when the, the, the scaffolding's needed, it's necessary for a time, but when the construction is completed, you don't leave the scaffolding up. I mean, you've got a great new building. The scaffolding served its purpose, and so you take it down. The scaffolding was never meant to be permanent that it's taken down as soon as its temporary function is finished. And so listen to how he puts it. The Jewish believer has fellowship with God, not on the basis of circumcision, national identity, possession of the Torah or the law, making the Mosaic sacrifices or access to the temple in Jerusalem, but in Christ alone. The scaffolding within which his forefathers lived has been dismantled. Now only Christ stands before him as the fulfillment of circumcision and Torah and sacrifice and temple. He enjoys a right relationship with God, the status of being God's son, because through faith he is in Christ. Exactly the same is true for the Gentile believer, who has no history or experience of circumcision, Torah, sacrifice, or temple, but he or she has Christ, and in him every spiritual blessing. The Jewish believer longed for and has now received his inheritance through faith in Christ. Gentile believers have discovered it in exactly the same way. 
Christ has fulfilled the law of Moses as a whole. He was fully obedient to its moral demands. He fulfilled its symbolism by himself being the sacrifice for our sins. God's new covenant people are now in Christ. The scaffolding built in Moses' ministry is no longer necessary since Christ, the true temple, has come. Indeed, to leave the administration of Moses in place would be to miss the whole point of it being established in the first place. That we should not long to see a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem because Christ, the true and better temple, has come. And praise God that he's come. And he has come to create in himself one new humanity. And so look with me at the second half of verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So Christ has now created in himself one new humanity. So think about what Paul's saying. He's not merely saying that that Jesus makes the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians get along. He's not saying that he makes the Jews and the Gentiles play nice together. He doesn't even say that he makes them more alike, that he makes them more similar. They now have more things in common. He says he makes them new, that he makes them new and he makes them one. He makes them new and he makes them one. Listen to how Chrysostom, the the great preacher from the early church, put it. It's as though one took a statue of silver and a statue of lead, two different things, put them into the one same forge, and then they come out a statue of gold. They didn't change to become more like each other. They became something new and something one. So look again at verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That God created the original humanity in Adam. In the first Adam, however, now Christ, the last Adam, has come. And Christ has recreated in himself a new humanity. Theologian S.M. Ball puts it this way, Paul could have said new people, but the focus here is on a new human race that is unified as one new man. This single new man is the bride of Christ. Created out of both Jews and Gentiles who were formerly dead and at war with each other. Who were at war with God and at war with each other. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us today? That we are all, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of the various categories that the, that the world uh, c- could use to divide us. And, and to say, you know what? Yeah, you know, you're not like him and you're not like her. You guys, I mean, how can you guys possibly get along That it's better than just getting along that we are all members of the same body because we are all united to the one head of the church, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Paul's not saying that Jesus helps different types of people get along better together. He's not saying that he helps us be nicer to one another. What he's saying is that you are no longer who you once were. You've been born again. You've been given new hearts. You've been raised to new life in Christ. You are new creations in Christ. What he says to to, to Paul's original audience, no longer think of yourself as primarily a Jew. No longer think of yourself as primarily a Gentile. That you are a Christian. And I think we're supposed to apply this in the similar way to our lives. 
that you are no longer who you once were. That Christ has recreated you in himself. That you are a new creation. You are a Christian. You are a new kind of person. Pastor Richard Phillips says, Jesus brings us to God in such a way that he also brings us to one another. He gives us new life and a new identity, which now we share with our brothers and sisters in him. This is the most radical way of making peace, by actually making us one. What that means is the church is not a social club. That we are the new creation brought about by the Spirit of God through the resurrection of Christ, the holy society of heaven living in this present evil world. So as, as one pastor put it, that as the shepherd calls the sheep to himself, he also calls the sheep closer to one another. So think about this. Do you, do you know someone with whom you would have no natural reason for a friendship? No natural reason for a relationship, and perhaps many earthly reasons uh, for them to be enemies, except that you're both Christians. I mean, you may have so many different differences from the world's perspective, so many different earthly differences, different ethnicities and nationalities and socioeconomic backgrounds, education levels and occupations and you belong to different generations, and, and on and on and on the list goes. But as soon as you begin to talk about Christ, his word, and his church, then your hearts are drawn together. I mean, have you ever experienced that? I've got to believe you have. I've got to believe it's not just me. That's the wonderful thing about this new humanity that's recreated in Christ Jesus, this bride of Christ, the church. And it's one of the things I love about this church. Now, this church is far from a perfect church, and that's mostly my fault, not your fault, okay? But it's far, far from a perfect church, but I do, I do love this church. And I love the fact, I love the fact that we want to have younger people, and a lot of them, and we want to have, and a lot of them, older people, blue-collar and white-collar, single and married, rich and poor, even inside the loop and even outside the beltway. English speakers and ESL students from every tribe and race. And this is only possible because we've all been brought near. All of us who once were far have now been brought near by the precious blood of Christ. And this is not only true of a church like ours in Houston, but you know, every, every few years, whenever I go and visit our church plant in Nairobi, Kenya, and our church plant in Oxford, England, I, and I'll, I'll do it to where I, I go to both really in about two weeks. So that means I, I see you here, and then I go see them all in about two weeks. And so in the, those two weeks, I spend time with three different churches on three different continents, with three different pastors, with very different backgrounds and nationalities. And here's what's true. We really love being together. We really enjoy our time together that we really enjoy talking about our families, introducing our families to one another. We enjoy talking about discipleship and about ministry and about theology. And I'll tell you, you would be utterly amazed. Three different pastors leading three different churches on three different continents, you would be amazed at how similar our worship services are. 
I remember back in 2020, before the world went crazy, or full, full crazy, that, that, that we all used the same catechism question as our affirmation of faith in our services three weeks apart. That we all did. I, I thought they were playing a joke on me. They were just copying what we did two weeks before. But we were so similar. It's amazing how similar we, we think about preaching and how similar our sermons are. And the reason why is because we all desire to be faithful. And we all share the same love for Christ, his word, and his church. So look, look back. Look back at verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And then if we flip forward to the book of Revelation, I believe that the Apostle John gives us a glimpse of what Ephesians 2.15 leads to. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. See, one new humanity standing before the one throne and crying out with one loud voice to our one God, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, friends, this is why racism can never, ever, ever be tolerated within Christ's church. And this is also why we do not need any help from secular theories and ideologies to teach us that. That the secular theories would have us rebuild new dividing walls, and that must never be for the people of God. Christ himself, in himself, has created one new humanity. And then we also see that Christ reconciled the one new humanity to himself through the cross. Look at verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So so do you see that Paul makes it clear that that Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to God in the same way? Not in different ways, but in the same way through the same cross of Christ. Do you see that? It's through the cross of Christ that there, there is no other way. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And guess what? There's never, ever been another way. That, that even the Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the Savior who was to come, just as we are saved by trusting in the Savior who has come and lived, died, rose from the grave, and who is coming back again. Listen to how John Calvin explains verse 16. The Jews are thus led to consider that they have not less need of a mediator than the Gentiles. Without this, neither the law nor ceremonies nor their descent from Abraham, nor all their dazzling prerogatives would be of any avail without Christ, without his redeeming work in his life, death, and resurrection. We are all sinners, and forgiveness of sins cannot be obtained but through the grace of Christ. And so listen one more time to these three verses together. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
You see, peace is not merely a blessing that Jesus gives, that he himself is our peace. That peace is a reality experienced in relationship with him, in fellowship with him, in spiritual union with Christ. And this peace, this reconciliation with God, only comes through the cross. And so look there at the end of verse 16, and do you notice, do you notice the most wonderful of ironies in that final phrase of verse 16? Thereby killing the hostility. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. As Christ was executed on Calvary's cross, God was executing or killing the hostility between himself and his elect people. As R.C. Sproul put it, Christ is our peace because he made atonement by the shedding of his blood and removed the distance that once separated us from God. Do you realize that? That no one has ever been in a neutral relationship with God. We're either, every one of us is either at war with God because we've waged war against God with our sin and our rebellion, and we are therefore objects of his wrath, Or we are at peace with God through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. We're either at war with God or we're at peace with God. That no one is in a neutral relationship. Consider what Paul says in in Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the only way to have peace with God. It's through the blood of Christ shed on Calvary's cross. Later in Romans 5, verse 10, we read, For if while we were enemies, see, that's the option. Either we are at peace with God through Jesus Christ, or we have made God our enemy. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, Jesus alone lived the sinless, perfect life we have all failed to live. He alone went to Calvary's cross to die the sacrificial, atoning death in our place, on our behalf, to pay our sin debt in full, to reconcile us to God. And it's because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection that we are declared forgiven, that we're washed clean, that we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, that we are legally justified before a holy God. And all of this is the objective peace with God that Jesus has accomplished for all who trust in him by faith. And so what that means is that if you're not yet a Christian this morning, then know that you are in a perilous situation. And not merely temporarily perilous, but eternally perilous because of your sin. That that you are not in a neutral relationship with God. No one is. You're either at peace with God through Christ or your sin has placed you at war with God. And this, my friend, is not a war you want to be in because it's not a war that you can win. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Trust in Christ. Bend your knee. Humble your heart. He is the savior you need. Trust in him. And know that Christ offers a true, real, lasting, objective peace with God who all who believe in him, for all who believe in him. And this objective peace with God really should bear real fruit in our lives. It ought to make a difference. I mean, how can it not make a difference at some level? 
I mean, how can, how can we be un, unmoved by knowing that our sins are forgiven? Knowing that we're at peace with God. Knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for us who trust in Christ by faith. If, if we understand this, 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 should, this should set our hearts at rest. And at peace when we remember all that Christ has done for us. We remember that there really is a place setting with your name on it at the great feast. The wedding supper of the Lamb, awaiting God's people in heaven. And there you will be with your brothers and sisters in Christ from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And all of this is objectively true for you, dear Christian. So do you know this peace? Do you know this Jesus who is our peace? As the old Bible commentator Matthew Henry put it, the peace of Christ is such that the smiles of the world cannot give it, nor can the frowns of the world take it away. Right? Christ gives us true peace. In fact, he himself is our peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, this amazing truth that we find in this verse, these verses. Christ, he himself is our peace. That we have not merely been made better, but we have been made new. and We have been made one. We have been reconciled to you, reconciled to one another through the cross. Father, please write these truths upon our hearts, we ask. And may we, and may we live in light of them. May we live in light of them the next time we bow our head to pray, the next time we open your word. May we remember this is, this is who you are. You are our heavenly father. We have access to you through Christ, by the spirit. You are our one father. That your word is, is absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And may we live in light of this in our interactions and our relationships, even our disagreements with one another, that we are now family. We've been made new and we have been made one. Recreated in Christ Jesus as a new humanity. May we live in light of this, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.